Good morning, Theo 102. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Good morning, everybody. This week, we are going to add a new phrase to the creed. A new phrase is coming your way. That phrase is the Holy Catholic Church, which raises the question, Dr. Payne, are we asking people to convert to Catholicism? Great question, Dr. Doe. <laughs> little Q&A time yeah. at the top. Actually, the term Catholic, and we've got a great lecturer who will talk a little bit more about that this morning, but the term Catholic, like the little c, not capitalized version, um, actually just refers to the church overall, the church universal. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like I used to live in the South. There's in the South, people say y'all, and then they say like all y'all. And it's kind of like that, saying like the all y'all Christian. All y'all churches, yeah. like not just your <laughs> own individual church. So when you proclaim belief in the Holy Catholic Church, you're saying that you believe that there's a body of Christians that's worldwide, worldwide. 2.1 billion people and more than just you and your own little community, that it's a really big thing. And actually, that's what the word Catholic means itself, like universal. And it's a body of believers across space and time. And we're going to talk, we're going to start talking a little bit about that today. We're going to start a journey where we talk about the formation of the church over time throughout history, which may be something that some of you um, have thought about before. This may be entirely new because a lot of times, uh, especially evangelical churches, like to think about the Bible mostly and not as much about church history. Mm. Um, did you grow up that way at all? Oh, totally. I thought the church that I, the church I came to faith in as a teenager, I thought, I don't think I thought this in my head, but I definitely thought in my heart that it was the only church on earth. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, like I knew intellectually that that wasn't true, but in my feelings, it was like, no, there are actually no other churches. I think that's, I, I mean, that was is the that same weird? way. Yeah, because yeah. I grew up as a pastor's kid, yeah. and so it's, it was just like our whole world was right. our little church. And I think one of the wonderful things about developing as an adult and growing in the faith is you learn about other versions of Christianity that surround you, mm -hmm. and you learn a lot of things from them. We have a lot to learn from one another and to give one another. So we're going to start exploring that. So for the week. next, yeah, so for the next three, four weeks, we're doing what we're calling a church history boot camp, okay? So our lectures are actually going to be oriented around taking us through history. What happened with this church right after Jesus left the scene? What was it like for the first couple hundred years? Then there's this long period that's sometimes referred to as the medieval period. Have you ever heard the word medieval? Middle ages? Okay, long period, hundreds of years. What was the church doing? Then there was this period called the modern period in which all kinds of bizarre things happen. Faith starts to break down for some people. You have this thing called the Reformation. What was that all about? Yep. And then culminating in our own current day today, we're actually going to take the lecture series up to 2020. I'm very excited oh. about this series. As a historian, I feel like this is just my, yeah. my very favorite month yeah. of the entire class. So be on the lookout for that. Um, if you signed up for a dinner with a professor, we are really excited about that. You'll be getting an email from your professor dinner host uh, very soon, so be looking for that. The window is closed for this time around, so if you were trying to squeeze your way in, come next time. We it's will, over. Yeah, we have we'll, tons we'll and tons of people. To Dinner's at awesome places. The first one's happening this Saturday at Hoda's Middle Eastern. Oh, it's going to be so great. Yes. And when so. you get your email, please do RSVP because we actually have a wait list, and so if you discover that you can't come after all, we want to know so that we can put the next person on the list. Don't ignore the email. You've got to say yes or no to the email so that we know, okay? That's okay. exactly right. Okay, we have one more week after this week of our weird schedule. 
And it culminates in the midterm exam. March 4th, midterm exam. We're all really excited about that. Um, and we are hoping that you're looking at the study guide. The study guide has been updated. It is ready to go for you. It's bare bones, and it's going to stay that way. Yes. We believe in you. We believe that you can do really well on this exam with what we've given you. You've taken yeah. two of these, and you know the format. It's going to be the same format, but all that's explained. But that's, that's pretty much that. So this week, Wednesday, we're back in here. And then next week, we're back in here Wednesday, but not for a debate or panel for the exam. And then for the rest of the semester, we're going back to our normal format, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So two more weeks on this weirdo format. Has everyone got that? Two more weeks of this? Yes. <laughs> yes. So now that's it is time for us to introduce your lecturer this morning. Dr. Joseph Clare, you know him, you have learned from him in the past. Yes. He is, among many things, a historian, theologian, ethicist, and also he's an avid fly fisherman, oh. we just learned this morning. So if you're into that, um, so is Dr. Clare, and he's learned many life lessons from that. Out there on the stream. Art, sport, I don't even know how to categorize Philosophy, it. Philosophy, lifestyle, let's call yeah, it a lifestyle, probably. the fly fishing lifestyle. <laughs> Right. Would you recite the creed with me up to where we are and the Holy Catholic Church? Uh, not and the Holy Catholic Church, the Holy Catholic Church. I will lead us. You ready? Let's do the creed. I believe, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Please welcome Dr. Joseph Clare. Welcome, Dr. Clare. It's good to see all of you this morning. Um, this bright Monday morning. I have a question for you. Do you believe in the church? Do you believe in the church? Raise your hand if you believe in the church. Okay, lots of hands going up. It's sort of a strange question to answer and not usually the way the question is posed. Do you believe in the church? But if you followed the flow of the creed, I believe in God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. You see that we're being called or asked or proposed to believe in the church. And in that, you see that the flow of the creed now is that this triune God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is now sending Himself forth through the Spirit to draw us back in to Himself and into His life through salvation and into life everlasting as we'll say in the last clause. So this is kind of a strange turn. I believe in God. I believe in the Father. I believe in the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the life everlasting. You see, there's been a story from creation until the end, from beginning to the end. And now, this part of the creed is about us. It's about right now. It's about this age that was inaugurated, as Dr. Edwards said, last Monday in Pentecost, in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit descends and gathers this new community. But we live in a time in which many people no longer believe in the church. I was looking at the statistics for belief and unbelief for Generation Z, which I guess you guys are Generation Z 
as far as I know. But you guys are the lowest church attending generation in American history. So there's less people going to church now. And actually, it said reasons for unbelief. You know, Dr. Doak a few weeks ago said the problem of evil, the problem of pain, the problem of suffering and squaring that with a good God. That's a main challenge for people to know and love God and go to church. The second biggest challenge is church itself. Church itself is the second biggest challenge to belief for your generation, according to the stats. It's filled with hypocrites. Some people say it's irrelevant. Other people say, further people say they've been hurt or beat up by the church and don't want to have anything to do with it. And yet the church marches on. The church is the largest global community on the face of the earth, other than a continental grouping. 2.1 billion people, 33% of the world's population say they are Christians. They are part of the church in some fashion. Maybe you're part of that statistic. But man, if you're like me, you've glimpsed at the church, you've been a part of it maybe, and you've seen it in its humanness and not its glory, and that maybe has you doubting whether or not you do believe in the church. Is it a country club, a social club, a venomous, judgmental circle of elitism? Is it a place you want to be, or is it the bastion of faith and life and love and service and hope? I want to spend this first week thinking about the nature of the church with you as we launch into our four-week boot camp. I want to spend just a moment thinking about what the New Testament teaches us the church is. How does Scripture itself invite us to view the church? And then second, what can we learn from the early church? So the early church, 100 to 500 A.D., just after Jesus and his disciples' time. What can we learn? And I want to suggest we can learn something about what we are to believe as Christians and how we are to understand ourselves as a community. What we are to believe how we are to think of ourselves as a community. We can learn that from the early church. But first, the New Testament. What is the church? The New Testament makes it very clear that it is the people of God gathered together. That Greek word for church, ekklesia, the gathering together of God's people. And it's somewhat clear in the Bible that the church is the gathering of God's people, the righteous, those who have faith in him, that stretches even before the New Testament. You might think of the way Paul talks about Abraham in Romans 4 as being the forerunner of faith, and why not think of Abraham as part of the church in this grand extended sense? You might even think of the good angels who didn't rebel against God as being part of this community that will ultimately be gathered in heaven to worship God eternally, crying the holy, holy, holy. But as Dr. Edwards rightly pointed out, we are in a new age and a new phase since the day of Pentecost. That's the church's birthday. That's when the Spirit descends. The Spirit moves and people begin to utter in new languages. And we learn something about the church. Different than the nation of Israel. Different than the one-off people of faith and righteousness. And that is that this new thing, the church, is going to be universal. That's what that word Catholic means. All over the place. It's going to be unified out of multiplicity and diversity. Many tongues, many tribes, many nations. The mission of God is at hand in Christ and pouring forth through the Spirit, and we are now out to the world. And still historians gawk and wonder, 
how in the world did Christianity spread so fast? A very, very minor, persecuted, hated little sect of a religion following a Jew from the backwaters of Israel and Nazareth. And all of a sudden, within a few hundred years, it's across the known world with millions of adherents. Any historian, Christian, secular, or otherwise, still can't fully grasp how Christianity spread in the early church. So we'll talk about that. But the New Testament makes it very clear that we are to think of the gathering of the people to God. And that's just people like you and me getting together, being a community. We are to understand ourselves in a new way. In the Old Testament, Paul says in Ephesians, God would make his presence known in a building, this grand building called the temple. And in that temple, his presence would be known in the Holy of Holies, and people would come to get close just to, just to taste or to feel the sacred. But here in the New Covenant, through Jesus' work on the cross and resurrection, and through the Holy Spirit, we ourselves are the temple. God is now making residence in human beings like you and me. That's a new, that's a new day that has dawned. These metaphors in the New Testament seem to work in varying levels of intensity. You think of God taking residence in a building or even in people, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, that's the most famous passage, but it's all over the New Testament, we could even think of it as the church, the gathered people, the yous and the me's being the body of Jesus Christ. The body of Jesus Christ. And he is the head. And if any of you have ever had your head chopped off, you know. Your body can't do anything without your head. No, you probably haven't had that happen. But the body is the source, it's the center, it's the center of command and rule and life. You can chop off a hand, and the hand has no life and withers. But the body adheres to the head. And Paul says, likewise, just as we need to abide and obey and obedience to Jesus as our head, we need to recognize our dependence on each other. Because if you have a body, you know... It's not good to have a hand on the left that won't cooperate with a, a hand on the right, etc. So you have this sense of God being in the community in a very special, dynamic, life-giving way. And you might think of Jesus Christ as being in existence in three ways. You have the divine word, the logos, the one who's always been with the Father, John 1 says, you have the human being, Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate one, the one who's fully human and fully divine, and then you mysteriously have Christ present in the church, in the church. Christ's embodiment in Jesus of Nazareth has gone forth into the world to the end of the earth and to the end of the ages through you and me, and now that is a great mystery. As one early church author put it, he said, it is not that Christ would be incomplete without us or with the church, but he did not wish to be complete without us and without the church. Christ is still alive and well on earth, bringing in the kingdom through us if we will just listen to him as our head, if we will just submit ourselves and attune ourselves to him. But likewise, you might say, mysteriously, that as the body of Christ, the church suffers 
hardship and misfortune and struggles and trials that Christ, in his mysterious, compassionate way through the Spirit, experiences that suffering with us. As Paul says, I continue to bear out the suffering of Christ in my very own flesh. So that is a great mystery. But third, the level of intensity goes even higher because here you have a resident occupying, here you have a head or a brain nurturing and providing activity. But here in Ephesians 5, Paul says that a bride and a groom actually is the greatest foreshadowing, the greatest depiction of the relationship between Jesus and you and me if you're part of the church. Why? Because in that relationship, this is all about identification through freely chosen love. Identification and union through freely chosen love. That is, you bring two people together, not by force or coercion, but by the freedom of love. Ultimately, the freedom of God's love, the groom coming after us, the compromised bride. So when we say the holy Catholic church, that is the aspiration that we are made holy by Christ's work at the cross and through his spirit. But in this, there's a kind of union that happens between the two in marriage that is psychological, it is spiritual, it is physical, bodily. Though you see two that are separate, behold, they are one, the Bible says. And that that's our hope now that we're tasting and glimpsing through our life of devotion and discipline and discipleship with Jesus, but ultimately, in the end, that we will be united as happily as you imagine that bride and the groom in some eternal honeymoon. Hopefully that's a happy thought for you. What does this look like in practice? The New Testament also gives us a lot to chew on, and I've just distilled it in this happy W alliteration. There's much more that could be said. But the church is a group of people that gathers together to meditate on the word of God found in scripture. To teach and admonish each other, to instruct each other, to know it, to learn it, to love it. And ultimately those words of the Bible lead us to love the word, Jesus, who was made flesh. We gather to worship. In the same spirit of ancient Israel, we gather together to sing praise, to offer our hearts, to give our sacrifices of our time, attention, affection, and money. We often do this through song, but it can be done through the arts. It has different practices and customs in every different variety of church. Some people, it's basically an awesome rock concert and a TED Talk. And some people, it's a very ornate thing where robes and incense and bells are tinkling. But that is the work of the church in praise of God. But here, we learn that it isn't just the sacrifice of praise to God, but it is works of love offered to one another and to the world. Paul says very clearly, if you want to know anybody's a part of this thing called the church, just look for the sign of the Holy Spirit, and that sign is love. That sign is love practiced in care and concern and sacrificial giving. Love your neighbor as yourself. And ultimately, it's about witness. People know about Jesus today simply because his followers started testifying to what they had found and seen and known and received in him. That this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was not just any man, 
that this man taught, that this man brought life, that this man healed, forgave, redeemed, and ultimately was risen and ascended. And that on the basis of those lip testimonies, Luke says in Luke 1, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we ourselves are here today because somebody testified, because someone bore witness. And if we don't continue to do that, as we're instructed in the New Testament, then the church is no longer. It is born out in the testimony of us Christians. Now this community that thrived after Jesus' resurrection, around 33 or so A.D., a little later depending on your calendaring, gave life to a vibrant community, although this community was on the margins. And by the year 100, the New Testament is finished being written, those final 27 books in your Bible. And this group of disciples who were with Jesus has died and we are left in a new period, a new age called early Christianity. And as you'll see in the creed as we move forward now, not just talking about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but talking about church and salvation through the forgiveness of sins and the life everlasting, that because God is spirit, God is alive and well with us since Jesus ascended and sent the Spirit. And so to know the Spirit is to know the church. And to know the church is to know its history. No, I wouldn't say these past 2,000 years are as important as the history we get in the Old and the New Testament, but we shouldn't scorn these 2,000 years. We shouldn't forget that the Spirit is making God known through this community called the church with all of its warts and stumbles and trials and that God is still present with us. And so we as Christians must take history very seriously because we have a God who reveals himself in time and in space. And though the canon was closed, as we'll talk about in a minute, the New Testament, it doesn't mean that we can forget what we see here today. Knowing this early period of Christianity will help us understand what we believe and who we are as a community. So what I want to talk about today is just this 400-year period from 100 to 500 AD, what we believe and how we understand ourselves as a community. When I came to know Christ in my own way in high school, I dove in to studying the Bible um, I went to Crescent Valley High School in Corvallis. Anybody here go to Crescent Valley? Yeah, I figured there had to be one. CV Raiders all the way. I, I was, um, man, I was an unlikely Christian. I was maybe one of the best skateboarders at Crescent Valley. I dropped off the baseball team. Um, I also supplied the most marijuana to Crescent Valley at that time, which was a pre-legal period. Um, and I was Smokey Joe as I was known at that time. Not something I'm proud of. The smile, yeah. I don't know how to interpret that clapping, so I'm not going to affirm um, what's happening there. But in this time, my heart 
was not with God. I had shreds and shards of Christian upbringing, but it had sort of gone by the wayside. And when I came to know Jesus in a personal way, I dove in just completely headlong and was devouring the scriptures. I got involved at church. I led a Bible study at Crescent Valley on Fridays at lunchtime in the cafeteria and then the humanities open area. And I would just stand up and talk about who Jesus was and what he had been in my life. And I had the advantage of people having seen me as one person and kind of turned into someone else. But when I got to college, I went to Oregon State University because I wanted to study business. So I had a kind of a side hustle to support ministry and I was doing youth ministry um, at my church. My first class at Oregon State, apart from chemistry and business, was a religion class because I saw in the books that there was a class called Jesus in the religion department. And I thought, if there's any class at college you want to take, it's Jesus, right? So I took it. But I discovered in that class a very, very different Jesus, a very challenging view of Jesus. And the professor had three kind of main claims. And that was the New Testament was written very, very late by people who didn't know Jesus in a direct way, and that you couldn't rely on most of what's said in the New Testament in the Gospels, but you rather would have to pick and choose between what you thought Jesus said here and didn't say here, and what you thought Jesus did here and what you didn't think he did here. So of course he didn't walk on water and certainly wouldn't have risen from the dead, but you know, he may have gone up to Samaria and talked to the woman at the well or something like that. And so I began a really challenging process of figuring out why I believed what I believed. And I hope some of you are going through that process right now. And that is you should fundamentally ask yourself the question at some point, why do we have the 27 books that are in the New Testament? Have you thought about that? Did you know that there were many, many, many other contender books and letters and even gospels floating around in the first century that didn't make it into the New Testament? And furthermore, why do we have these books, but how do we interpret them? Did you know that the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity that we love and have been celebrating in this class, that God is somehow mysteriously Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons and one God, that that's not clearly articulated in the New Testament? You certainly see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You get the... You get the um, the name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Matthew 28, but you don't get the sense of the Trinity and you don't get the term the Trinity. So I was left scrambling at that time trying to figure out why do I take the New Testament to be the thing? And this term canon, which is from the Greek for rule, this is the idea that the 27 books in the New Testament are the books and no other books can be added, none can be taken away. That's the rule of our faith. And creeds, which you guys have been very dutifully memorizing in our time, which is awesome. There are four really important ones from this period of early Christianity, and one is called the Apostles' Creed. That was your freebie from around 180 AD. We don't exactly know where it came from. It probably wasn't penned by committee by the apostles, but it's an early crystallization of the core beliefs of Christianity. And some of these creeds were put together at the seven councils that you have in the early church, bleeding a little bit into the medieval church, where all the known church from all over the known Mediterranean world got together 
to argue and debate and to figure some of these things out. The core creeds are the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. We'll put this in the notes. I know that's a lot to take in quickly, and I invite you to take another theology class uh, with us next year in the core to go deeper. Who do you think the Athanasian Creed is attributed to? Athanasius, come on, you guys are getting it. Athanasius lived in the 300s and was a very important early Christian thinker. And actually, it's in Athanasius's second festal letter in 367 AD that we have the 27 books of the New Testament nailed down for the first time according to consensus within the early Christian Catholic lowercase c church. So that's a bit later than I expected. So I was on the hunt to try to figure out why the New Testament, why the Trinity, why do I believe Jesus was fully divine and fully human? Because this teacher that I had at OSU thought he was fully human but not fully divine. And so I tried. I started fighting fire with fire. I tried to make the arguments. I tried to figure it out. I transferred from Oregon State University and went to Wheaton College in Chicago land. And I took a summer study tour to the Holy Lands, kind of like a junior's abroad to Israel. And my faith was in a very challenged time. I was not able to shake some of the questions that had been posed to me my first year at Oregon State. And I thought by getting to Israel and to Jerusalem to see where Jesus walked and to see some of the sights that it would strengthen my faith, knowing that these things in the New Testament happened, that Jesus is God attested to by his miracles and ultimately his resurrection. And I had an epiphany in Jerusalem by being kicked right in the butt. Have you ever had an epiphany from that? And this was literally, I got kicked in the butt. I went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Anybody ever been to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre? You should go if you can, juniors abroad. It's the traditional site that is supposed to be where Golgotha or Calvary is, where Jesus died on the cross, and then where he was buried in the tomb, and there's the empty tomb. And it's such a massive church, it actually covers that whole plot of ground from the ancient city. And I went in, and the line was way too long to see the empty tomb, and I just couldn't handle it. So I went over to the other side of the church to try to see Calvary. And Calvary was mysteriously empty inside this, like, ornate, baroque, medieval, late medieval, early Renaissance-looking church and I saw there was an altar up at the front of the room. And under the altar, I looked down, and there was a plexiglass cover with a bright spotlight shining on the bedrock of Jerusalem. You could actually see the exposed ground of Israel. And there in the middle of the plexiglass was a hole. And it was clear that you could, if you crawled just right, you could actually put your hand down the plexiglass hole, and if you stretched far enough, you could get your fingers to touch Mount Calvary. And there were the stained, greasy finger marks of many centuries of pilgrims who had come 
to touch the rock. And so I thought, this is my moment, Lord. So I squeezed myself under this marble altar. I can barely get down. I've got like a fingernail on the granite or limestone. I'm starting to feel it. And just then, boom, kicked from behind. And I turn around, and there's like an army, like 55 um, fairly short Costa Rican women. And I knew they're from Costa Rica because they have blue tourist jackets that said Costa Rica in red on the front. And I guess I'd spent too much time under the altar looking for a sign. And I had the thought as clear as a bell. Joseph. I will strengthen your faith, but it will be through my church. It will be through knowing my church, my work throughout time, throughout history, and around the world today. You're not going to figure this one out in a purely intellectual mental voyage. You need to commit yourself because I am somehow still with you in the church, even these ladies. And it was from that moment on that I began to dive into knowing church history, especially early Christianity. And I've come to see this. That I believe in the New Testament, in the Bible, in the canon of Scripture, but I also need to understand who these people were and the questions they were asking and the struggles they were having so that I can understand why these books made it and other ones didn't. That I can start to understand that in the early church there was a big movement called Marcionism, named after a guy named Marcion, 150 AD, thereabout. You know what Marcion said? He said, yeah, Christianity, here's what it's all about. We have to get rid of the Old Testament. We just have to cut it out of our Bibles. And basically, we can only have a little bit of the Gospel of Luke and a couple of Paul's letters. Why? Because the God of the Old Testament is a fierce, evil dude, and we just need to stick to Jesus. That was a strong movement in the second century. And the early church said, no, we believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Old Testament and the New Testament and the church's relationship to Israel is important. There was another dude in the second century named Montanus. And he had a movement called Montanism around the same time, 150 AD. You know what he said? He said, yo, I fall into a trance and I just start speaking with the Holy Spirit. And everybody's like, well, that's, that's okay. You kind of get that in 1 Corinthians a little bit. But he's like, no, like I start speaking by the Holy Spirit and it's kind of the same thing as the New Testament. It's like the Bible. And everybody was like, wait a second. I don't know if we can keep having fresh revelations that add on. There's something complete about this period, pre-100, and the message that we got from Jesus and the apostles that is closed. And therefore we can't add or subtract. What I have learned, my friends, from the early church is that here we find the support. I just keep circling things when I'm talking. I don't know why. 
here we find the support of tradition, lowercase t tradition. You know the four Wesleyan principles in the quadrilateral from Dr. Payne? Remember what they are? Scripture, number two. Tradition. Reason. Experience. I'm going to put that on the midterm. We should add that. It's back. Scripture and tradition work together because as the New Testament was being finalized and the canon was being compiled, the early church was saying these are the books that most helpfully teach us who Jesus is, fully man and fully God, that most display this God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. So that tradition is not a cop-out, like, oh, I don't know what happened. It's just like it got handed down and I shoved it in my brain and that's just called religion. It's not a cop-out, but it is a boost that helps us understand how the scriptures even came about and what questions were being asked, what heresies were being avoided or false beliefs. And furthermore, how are we inheritors who depend on the faith which has been handed down. Paul says, I handed down to you that which was handed down to me. Paradosis in Greek or traditio in Latin, 1 Corinthians 15. We are dependent on the handing down of the faith. And although that handing down was completed and crystallized in the New Testament, assuredly the handing down continues through the life and vitality of the church. Now second, the early Christian church was caught between two very different phases in its life. And 312 is the marker. 312 AD represents the conversion of Constantine, the emperor, and the legalization of Christianity. Christianity was not made the Roman imperial religion, but it was legalized. Before 312, Christians were on the margins. They were being eaten alive by the beasts and the gladiators and the circus in the forum, and it was ugly. And Christians were a very pure, select body of people on the margins of society, and that all changed in 312 AD. When all of a sudden you had every Tom, Dick, and Harry going to church because you weren't going to be killed for it, anybody might end up in church. You could be, if you could be the emperor and go to church, then anybody could go to church. And the church started to wrestle with its identity, saying, we're not the elite, elect, pure, exclusive community on the side. We're now kind of mainstream. We now have lots of people in the church who maybe aren't really followers of Jesus. And so they start reading the parables of Jesus in a new way, where Jesus says, the kingdom is like a field of wheat and tares. And it's not until the end of the ages when the wheat and the tares will be separated. And so this tension between the pure and the persecuted on the margins and the mixed, the visible and the invisible, the good and the bad, continues on into our own age. The mixed vision of the church is not just a claim that there's good and bad, real and unreal Christians in the community, but it is the claim that you and I should not do the judging before the end of the age. It will be Jesus, the judge, who will separate the wheat and the tares. And what is more, the early church thinkers said, that mixture of good and bad 
is actually right inside you and I. Although we ought to fight the injustice that is out in the world, we ought to first root out the injustice in our own lives. The mixture is not just individual people, but it's very much us. We cannot physically separate the good and the evil, saved and the unsaved in this age. We are all good and wicked in some respects. The early church Christians asked this question, which are you, wheat or tares? One author said, the greatest threat to the church is not the heretic or the pagan outside, but from within, from Christians who belong to the church only with their bodies while their hearts are elsewhere. Man, that's what I heard when I was a sophomore at Crescent Valley. I'd been belonging to the church in body only for 16 years while my heart was elsewhere. All this stuff about the church, about the New Testament vision of the church and church history and pure and mixed and canon and creed and council, it doesn't matter unless you hear the knock of the Holy Spirit in your own heart inviting and wooing and drawing you in to be part of this body of Christ where you're forgiven, where you're made new, where all the junk is wiped away. New creation. And that's what I heard. Knock, knock, knock. And my invitation into the church when I was 16 years old changed absolutely everything in my life trajectory. If it was not for those pastors who spent time with me, who took me through the Bible, who invited me into a totally di different way of living than I was living, then there would be no me now. There would be no life with Christ. And so I think in these four weeks, I just encourage us all to ask the question, are we wheat or tares? Are we here in body only while our hearts are elsewhere? Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Thank Claire. Thank you, Dr. Claire. <laughs>